Welcome to the third episode of the Vintage Matches Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson, flying solo today. On each episode of this podcast, I will pick a sporting event from history and examine it through today's lenses. Just a reminder, we are working our way up to the Euro 2020 tournament set to take place across Europe this summer. So the game we are focused on today is the 1968 UEFA European Football Championship final replay between Italy and Yugoslavia. But how do we get to that match? In the first two episodes of this series, I talked about how the qualifying process for the first two Euros was too random, given the fact that it was an open draw. Well, that changed for Euro 1968. And just a reminder, I will always call these tournaments Euro 1968 or Euro 2008 or Euro 1996, even though they weren't actually called that at the time. Obviously, you can see by the the name change of this one, the first two were called the Nations Cup. Now it's changed to the UEFA European Football Championship. They wanted to give it a little bit more prestige because the tournament hadn't caught on as much as they had hoped. Anyway, this time around, there was a group stage in the qualifying for the first time. 31 nations participated in that qualifying process, which took place between the fall of 1966 and the spring of 1968. The 31 teams were placed into a draw, which gave us eight groups, one of which only had three teams instead of the customary four. The teams who topped each qualifying group were placed into the quarterfinal draw. The quarterfinals were two-legged, home and away, with the four winners advancing to the finals. The final four, kind of single elimination element, was kept from the previous two iterations of the competition. So who made the last four? Spain, Bulgaria, Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Italy, France, and England all won their qualifying groups to get to the quarterfinals. A quick note on the England group. So that was actually made up of the four teams that comprised the UK, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And they used the home cha- the British home championship results, which is a tournament that they would play throughout the international breaks, throughout the seasons from 67, from the 66-67 season and the 67-68 season. So again, is also a little bit odd. It's just to kind of take like, oh, we already have this tournament in place. Let's just use that as one of the qualifying groups. So I thought that was a little bit strange. And again, there was one team, there was one group that only had three teams, and that was group four with Yugoslavia, West Germany, and Albania with Yugoslavia, obviously, topping that group. Um, So that's how we got to our quarterfinals. And in the quarterfinals, Italy was drawn against Bulgaria, which they won 4-3 on aggregate in a pretty pretty wild uh, uh, matchup there. Soviet Union knocked out Hungary 3-2, England beat Spain 3-1, and Yugoslavia knocked out France 6-2 with a dominant 5-1 second leg victory. So we had our final four, Italy, Soviet Union, England, and Yugoslavia, with Italy chosen to host this tournament. We have arrived at the finals. Three tournaments in, and the Soviet Union are the only team to make it to the final four in all three of these Euros. However, with Italy chosen as host, the matches would take place in three different cities. I had a little bit of trouble choosing which match I was going to focus on for this episode. Best believe that I was not going to watch the first semifinal, which Italy won on a coin toss after 120 minutes of scoreless football against the Soviet Union. Okay, a coin toss decided the semifinal of this tournament, which took, I mean countless number of games and qualifying matches and uh, minutes of football being played. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we get to the end of this game and oh, we don't want to play a replay or we don't want to have you know penalty shootout or anything like that. That wasn't even in people's minds at the time. Let's just flip a coin. So um, really, obviously a ridiculous way to end, to end uh, something as, as prestigious as a semifinal of a major tournament. But that's what they did. Actually, let me let me read this piece from uh, Gordon Jeffrey in a world soccer magazine from the time. Uh, I think he sums it up even better than I could uh, with some colorful language from 1968. Some sense of inadequacy entered the tournament after 120 goalless minutes of play in the opening match between the host country Italy and the Soviet Union. And the announcement that, after all that endeavor, and after the Soviet Union's six matches against Greece, Austria, and Finland in the qualifying competition, and their two matches against Hungary in the quarterfinals, and Italy's six matches against Romania, Switzerland, and Cyprus, and the two matches against Bulgaria in the quarterfinals, after those... 1,560 hours of football and thousands of miles of travel, Italy had qualified for the final of a European football championship because their color fell uppermost when a disc was tossed. 
That's just a perfect way, perfect way to sum it up. Um, and, and the sense I got from reading some of these old articles from 1968 was that this tournament was still, even though the process was better, they, you know, they'd obviously had the groups and it seemed like there were higher quality teams that actually got to the quarterfinals and the final four. It still was not totally on the up and up. Like they, they still hadn't quite figured out how to do this tournament efficiently over the course of international breaks, you know, between, between world cups. Um, and they hadn't, it's like they, the ideas of a good tournament are there and the teams are starting to care a little bit more, but they just can't quite figure out exactly how to do it. And it's still kind of led to some, some obviously odd results and, and, and a semifinal being determined on a coin toss. So again, completely ridiculous, but, uh, those are the rules of the day. And so that's, that's what happened. The other semifinal in Florence saw Yugoslavia knock out England with an 86 minute goal from Dragan Zajic. England did well to win the third place match, however, 2-0 over the Soviets with goals from 1966 heroes Bobby Charlton and Jeff Hurst. So it was Italy and Yugoslavia in the final in Rome. The win of this tournament was supposed to be decided on the 8th of June, 1968, or so we thought. Yugoslavia dominated the final, but Italy got a late equalizer through a ridiculous Angelo Domingini free kick to force extra time. Neither team scored in the extra session, and a replay was scheduled for two days later. The replay was again played at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome, with the attendance dropping from 68,000 to 32,000. Yugoslavia only made one change in their starting lineup for the replay, while Italy made five changes to theirs. Most notably, Luigi Riva was fit to play in the replay. Without an obvious other candidate, I decided on the final replay as the match to focus on for this episode. So let's get to it. Thankfully, the final was not decided on a coin toss. We had to have a winner. Thanks again to the wonderful footballia.net for providing this match, uh, the full match uh, that I got to watch. Obviously, it's in black and white and it's Italian commentary. But again, it's a very modern feeling broadcast, you know, especially for the day. It feels like I'm actually watching, you know, a normal football match uh, as opposed to the 1961, which we've talked about in the last couple episodes, just being a very strange broadcast. And I think that's something, you know, to, to note on these games that I've watched so far is I, I even in the eight years from 1960 to 1968, you can kind of see a little bit of a tactical evolution and a little bit of a uh, speed evolution in terms of just the players are just playing at a quicker pace. And I thought the opening 10 minutes of this match were actually played at a pretty good pace, despite the fact that both teams had, they just played two days earlier, obviously Uh, Luigi Riva coming back for the final um, legendary Italian striker, you know, one of the greatest Italian players of all time. He opened the scoring on 12 minutes with a powerful left foot shot, uh, beating Pantelic in the Yugoslav goal. Yugoslavia created a couple of chances, but Italy were in full control of this first half. Half an hour in Italy scored a wonderful second goal. The move started with the keeper Dino Zoff, tossing out to Sandra Mazzola on the right-hand side. Mazzola evaded a challenge and then found Giancarlo De Sisti in the midfield. De Sisti played a 1-2 with Domingini before finding Pietro Anastasi on the edge of the box. The Juventus man saw his first touch pop up a bit, but that didn't matter because the striker swiveled and powered in an excellent volley into the bottom left-hand corner of the net, 2-0 to Italy. A quick word about the Italian shirt numbers. Again, I'm obsessed with football shirts, so I'm going to talk about this stuff on every single podcast. My favorite shirt, which that's coming later, and then just shirt numbers and different kind of like things I noticed. You know, when did we finally get names? And that's obviously not coming until the 90s. But um, the Italian shirt numbers, they were done alphabetically instead of positionally. So normally you have a goalkeeper wearing number one, you know, a left back wears number three, a right back wears number two. And Michael Cox has written some really excellent pieces uh, for The Athletic about shirt numbers and the history of shirt numbers and how different nations kind of use different shirt numbers. But there's a general kind of like the keeper always wears number one, the center forward, you know, usually wears number nine. The creative kind of fulcrum midfielder usually wears number 10. That's kind of the most famous shirt number, obviously. Um, but the Italian ones, because it's alphabetical, you have players playing in like very strange position. You're wearing or normal positions, but wearing very strange shirt numbers. So Pietro Anastasi, the scorer of the second Italian goal, is playing as a center forward, but he's wearing number two because you know, his name starts with an A. So he's early of you know the Italian shirt numbers at the time. For the purists, that had to be annoying. Anyway, on to the second half. 
where the tired legs started to show for both sides. Italy was kind of playing a 5-3-2 with left wing back Jacinto Facchetti allowed to make overlapping runs and push forward. Yugoslavia mostly played a 4-3-3 and earlier in the tournament put together excellent passing sequences, but their play suffered in the replay due to fatigue and the physicality of the Italians. Riva's header missed the mark 10 minutes into the second half, which was a big chance for Italy to extend their lead. Yugoslavia tried to make hay multiple times down their right-hand side before crossing into the box, but Zoff claimed every single one of those crosses. Later in the half, Anastasi had the ball in the back of the net again, but it was ruled out for a foul in the buildup. The Italians did well to hang on to their lead and not allow many chances in that second period. With just a few minutes to play, the ball bounced into the stands, and there was some shenanigans with the supporters before one finally threw the ball back to an official. That World Soccer article that I had read from earlier also mentioned how wild the Roman crowd was, and I think we caught a glimpse of it there with the ball. The Spanish referee blew his whistle, finally ending this tournament and crowning the Italian hosts with their first ever European championship. Facchetti lifted the trophy high above his head as the broadcast came to a close. On each of these Euroview podcasts, I will wrap up by going over five categories, the first one being one big takeaway. And I think for this one, both from the footage I watched and the pieces I read, is that the game had become too defensive and too physical. It just seems like the overwhelming sense of protecting what you have or not allowing you know anybody to build up play was more important than actually going and attacking the game in general. And I think the game needed some saving is, is kind of the the vibe that I get. And even from the games I watch it, it is like, you know, the pace is quicker, but it, it is mostly defensive. And I think we saw that in most of the sixties and the tournaments in the sixties is a pretty defensive tournament, you know, the world cups of 62 and 66 and obviously these euros so far. And I think some of these riders were right. The game kind of needed saving. Um, and obviously we, we, you know, we'll talk about that in a bit, but you know, we kind of got that in 1970 with the world cup. Um, best shirt. Um, there are some really clean shirts on display between obviously the classic, the CCCP Soviet Union one. England had just their classic white one. That's what they wore in the semifinal um, and the third place match. But it's hard to resist the royal blue of the host nation and the Italian shirts. Um, the Azuri, as they're called. Just, yeah, again, just a really clean, clean look. And there's not a lot going on on a lot of these. There's not like really unique designs. They're all just kind of like a plain blue or a plain white or a plain red, uh, which is a crest or just like I said, the CCCP for the Soviet ones. So it's not as exciting as like the Euro 1996, you know, shirts will be. But um, but again, I think that Italy one probably takes it for this one. My favorite player to watch and the most of the time player. Uh, Pietro Anastasi was a terror to the Yugoslavian defense. He popped up in dangerous positions all game long and obviously scored that brilliant second goal for Italy in the final replay. Um, and I thought he was the guy that kind of stood out to me. Um, I just really enjoyed watching him play. Just really fun. And a special shout out to Facchetti. Uh, what a legend he is of Italian football. Uh, one random observation from the broadcast. Italian commentary is just so good. Um, and also this is the last match that I will have to watch in black and white. Obviously 1970 was the first world cup that was fully broadcast in color and 72, the Euro years of 72 also were broadcast in color. So whatever game I choose for that tournament, I'll get to watch in color. Finally, did the right team win? That's a question The kind of last question we'll talk about. And again, that's, that's hard to answer. I mean, that, that's, you know, depends on kind of what you think. If, if you're just a person that's, oh, the result is the only thing that matters and, um, what the final score says and, and the goals tally is the only thing that matters and, and, how teams play or what happened early in the tournament is irrelevant. All that matters is who won the final. I, I, I don't really view it that way. I'm a bit more romantic when, I, you know, when it comes to you know sports in general. And I kind of, I like when the team that kind of plays the best style or is the most dominant throughout the course of the tournament actually gets rewarded with winning the final. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. And I think this is one where it's really tough to say because the tournament format was just so different. Um, obviously, we don't have access to a ton of the highlights and the footage from the qualifying games. Um, some of the home championship stuff is on is on YouTube and Footballia, but 
but the actual like group stage games, there's just very few highlights to see. So it's hard to get a sense of like who was really dominant other than just looking at the scores of those. And then in the tournament itself, the final four, I mean, Italy with the whole coin toss debacle, I mean, winning the winning a semifinal at coin toss where it's a scoreless game. I mean, that's it's hard to say that they're just, you know, justifiably in the final. And then in the final itself, it's like they're outplayed pretty badly in that first final before the replay. And then the second, and then the, the replay, they actually played really, really well. And I thought they did deserve to win that game specifically, but were they the right team to win the tournament? Hard to say. And it's, it's another one where, and I think another one of the world soccer articles I read talked about how sometimes these host nations, it just kind of feels like everything goes in their favor, including just like little refereeing decisions and things like that. And just like, you know, shots that just kind of hit the post instead of going in for the opponent. And it just kind of all seems to kind of favor the home side. And that's kind of what happened in this tournament. So it's hard to say that, that they were not the right team, but I also, it doesn't feel like, oh yeah, definitely. Like they deserved it. 1968 Italy. That's, that's clear. That's one of the all-time greatest teams. Um, it doesn't really feel that way. So there you have it, three tournaments in, and the world hasn't totally warmed up to this tournament quite yet, despite its increasing number of teams trying to qualify. The footballing world needed what was to come next at the World Cup in Mexico in 1970, and that glorious Brazil side. But the World Cup is for another podcast project from me in the future. For now, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for a breakdown of Euro 1972.